We'll pick up in Joel chapter 2, where we left off, verse 18 through 32. Joel 2.18. Now, if you remember, Joel was a contemporary of Joash, king of Judah. And this is uh, a very interesting time uh, in Judah's history. The southern two tribes would be Judah and Benjamin, much smaller than the uh, larger ten tribes. And we kind of pick it up with his grandfather, uh, Jehoshaphat, who was a good king. Most of the kings, half of the kings, I would say, somewhere in that neighborhood, were good kings in Judah. And some of them, the other half, not so good. Um, but Jehoshaphat was a good king, and he reigned for 25 years. And he had a son named Jehoram, uh, who became king. And Jehoram was evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, the Lord struck him with an incurable disease, and he died. That's Second Chronicles 21.18. But Jehoram uh, was an evil king that was married to Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. And so herein we have the connection in a religious way as well as a leadership way of the idolatrous practices that were going on in the uh, ten northern tribes are now subtly being transferred into the southern kingdom. And this will obviously lead to the same practices and eventually God's judgment poured out upon them. So, Jehoram had a younger son named Haziah, and he reigned after him. And the Bible says he was also wicked. And Jehu, if you remember this character that was anointed by Elijah uh, to go forth and basically exterminate the whole house of Ahab. That line there uh, is what led to greater corruption. There was Jeroboam who started the whole mess because of the calf worship. But the next level up in idolatrous practice is the ox worship or Baal worship. And so when Ahab married Jezebel who was a, from a Sidonian her dad was the king of Sidon, and he was wicked. I mean, they were Baal worshippers. So when Ahab married her, she brought in her high-level idolatrous worship, and they went full-on idolatry in the northern tribes. So they have their daughter, Athaliah, and she marries Jehoram. He dies she kills all the heirs. Athaliah kills all the heirs except one. And his name was Joash. He was hidden, he was one years old, hidden by Jehoiada, the high priest. Jehoiada was married to uh, Joram's daughter. So it would have been an aunt to Joash. She was married to Jehoiada the priest. So an interesting connection. One of the priests is married to the king's daughter. 
He was an older guy, and he hid uh, the little man uh, with the nurse in the bedroom for six years. And when he was seven, he went. He made the trek around the country and rounded up all the military, essentially, brought them into Jerusalem, set this whole thing up, and then brought the king out and inaugurated him and proclaimed him king. So this is how we get to, to the situation that we're in. That's why I think the history is so intriguing to me. When you start seeing how we got to the place where God would allow this judgment to come upon Israel with the locusts and the and the plagues, and then and as we read tonight, we're going to see where uh, God blesses them and restores them. And you, you know, this is mind-boggling to me because you know the natural way of thinking is that look, if you're going to play around with these idols and you're going to serve sin, then have at it. I'm done with you, and you know God forsakes you. Well, what happens is he lets it, that kind of practice work its pain and sorrow in the lives of the people till the pain becomes so intense they, they cry out to God and they ask for help. And it is because he's so merciful, when people sincerely repent, what does he do? He heals them. He forgives them. And he restores them and he blesses them. And so this is what we see, this back and forth judgment, repentance, blessing uh, of God. I mean, you think about that, about some of the uh, things we experience in church life. It's the same. Human nature hasn't changed in 6,000 years. <laughs> we, people are insincere, sometimes superficial in their relationship um, with God. Bottom line that we pick up from the prophets, if we gain nothing else, one of the things we should learn about the nature and character of God, that he requires a full-on commitment. If you're superficial and you don't have a full-on commitment in your heart, then you're not going to experience the blessings of God to the greatest degree you could. You're just going to miss out. He'll still love you. He'll bless you to the highest level that he can because that's who he is. But you're, you're never going to really experience all that God has for you with that kind of commitment, that being less than full commitment. And, and in this particular section, now we'll pick it up in verse 18, the Lord speaks to the land. Now, I find that fascinating. You know, we read about Jonah, that he speak, spoke to the whale or the great fish, right? And the great fish became a submarine for him and gobbled him up. And then he spoke to the great fish and it vomited him out upon the seashore where he was supposed to be anyway. I just find it interesting that God has no problem communicating with nature. I had a chat with a lady not too long ago and she says, and she kind of knows that I really kind of love animals. I think they're really cool. All sorts of animals. And she says she really likes plants. And she actually talks to her plants. And she believes that her plants actually respond. <laughs> so she's, she was telling me about this certain plant that she says to him, <laughs> I don't know if it's a he or she, okay. But in so many words, he's not doing so good. In the wintertime, really needs to be put in soil in a warmer environment, sunshine, and it can grow and prosper. So, hey, buddy, she says to the plant, <laughs> you're going to have to hang in there until April. 
Yeah, I know you're looking kind of rough, but just, just hang in there until April. She said the next day she went in there and there was a set of sprouts sticking out. So take it for what it's worth. <laughs> and if you want to talk to your plants, you just go for it. <laughs> and or your animals. <laughs> Verse 18, the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his children. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into the barren and desolate land with his face towards the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. His stench will come up, his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield its strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month, the threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Praise and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And the people shall never be put to shame. And then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people shall never be put to shame. This is a pretty powerful thing. One of the things that brings shame, it's a, it's a terrible thing. Guilt brings shame. And that's the wonderful thing that you and I have as believers, that we don't have to live with any kind of shame in our lives. We don't have to be ashamed. You know what? Nobody likes to blush. Nobody likes to be put in an, in a, an embarrassing situation. And I don't think the Lord wants us to be um, in that kind of situation. And when we repent and we live for him, well, there is no shame. But you think about in here, as he says about speaking to the land, he is zealous for his land. He loves the Holy Land. Now, you know, Kathy and I were over there this uh, late summer, and it, there's parts of it that are just, it's not real pretty. <laughs> the high desert. Not the yeah, I mean, no greenery, but you get up around the, the Galilee and there's irrigation galore and there's farming like there's no tomorrow. There's just, it's, it's just, it's black and white, so to speak. It's completely great or it's really barren. But nevertheless, I think the land is somewhat under a judgment because Israel's blind. They're living uh, in a blind stupor uh, until their eyes are opened. And hopefully the church, we Gentiles, can provoke them 
by our love and grace extended to them, regardless of their blindness and their attitude. But think about how God loves this land. And he loves keeping his promise to the patriarchs. I'm giving you this land. And even though he allowed it to be ravished by these locusts and, and because of the rebellion and the sin of the people, you think about all the innocent blood that was shed. The land the earth was crying out for retribution for the murders that had been committed in the land. And this is why God brings the judgment. He has to. His nature, the foundation of God's throne is what? Justice and righteousness. And everything God does is based upon those bottom line foundational truths of who he is. But he's also merciful and he pities his people he desires to expend, uh, extend his mercy. And think about, Paul captured this in Romans 8. I want to read this to you. Romans 8, 18 through 23. I think this, is, this will help us. Because I don't know about you, but the longer you live, your body's breaking down. The drudgery of the lifestyle we have to live in this world. We work, we sleep, we, we interact. You know, it's, it's pretty much what we do. But he, Paul, in writing to the Romans, said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this is verse 18 through 23, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into this glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. So this is what I was trying to describe. Did you groan this morning when you got up and got out of bed? It doesn't get any better. Just ask Eddie. <laughs> Pick on the elders, right? You know, I do want to slip in here. In the Hebrew word, ben Elohim, sons of God, when you read that in the Old Testament, what is connected to that is the thought and truth that sons of God were a direct creation of Yahweh. Adam was a direct creation. He wasn't birthed. He didn't have a mom. He was a direct creation. He, Adam is called the son of God. All the angels, as far as we can tell, uh, from what I can tell anyway, are male. And there, are no, there was no pre procreation of angels. God created each one of them individually, it appears. Sons of God, direct creation of Yahweh. You know what it says in the New Testament about us? 
to those who believe on his name. To them, he gave the right, the authority, to become sons of God. Paul writing to the Corinthians, you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things became new. You, your spirit man, you're born again. That is a direct creation. You were born not of the will of man, but the will of God. Isn't that awesome? You're, you are now, your new man is a direct creation of Yahweh, just like the angels, just like Adam. Now, the flesh, not so much. <laughs> and we're going to dispatch with that, you know, just as we've read. And that's why we groan. And that's why we're eagerly waiting for this whole manifestation to take place. This is wonderful. And, and in this state, God, as we've read here, God has pity upon his people. Verse 19, uh, he will answer his people. Why would God do this? Because of what he happened in verses 12 through 17. There was a call to repentance. Because they rent their hearts and not their garments. Remember in Judah, there were times, there were revivals. Josiah, Joash was a bit of a revival initially. He started repairing the, if you go back and study the history here, Joash, Jehoiada was a tremendous example to this guy. He, they, remember they made this little box, this little chest, and they put it by the door of the tabernacle, and when everybody would come to church, so to speak, they'd drop in their offering, and they got so much in there, they had to dump it out and put it back again. <laughs> and they gathered all that money up and gave it to the craftsmen, the carpenters, the masons, and they did all. They refurbished everything. They got it back on track like it was supposed to be. Kept, they, were take, they were mindful. They were, and he, they got back to the, to the word, Essentially, they returned to the Word of God and they started obeying it. This really worked well for a number of years. This is why that was repentance. You know, Jehoram, who was wicked, the people, they brought in all that filth and the idolatrous practices that were going on in the northern kingdoms, and God spanked them. And they said, Ouch, we don't want to do this anymore. And then God brought someone to lead them out of that using Jehoiada the priest. Unfortunately, some of this was superficial because as soon as Jehoiada died, Joash went sideways. It's really sad. He, he uh, persecuted some of the prophets and he was you know, punished for that. He turned away from uh, his heart. So this is why we see this up and down. So, so it isn't that God's watching over to punish as soon as you step on. It, he responds to our choices. He is a, his general thrust towards you and I as his children is to bless us. And the only thing that gets in the way of blessing us is when we don't obey or we refuse to submit to him. If we get in the zone where we're supposed to be, it's, it's blessing, and in, even if we do suffer, he gives us so much grace to, to just make it through. You know, think about how God has tempered your life in this cursed world that you've lived in for many years. Well, I look back over my life and I think, the Lord has answered my prayer that I had as a young man was, Lord, teach me the lessons I need to learn the easiest way possible. You know, you can use it's the two before or the four by four. Take your pick. I'll take the two before. <laughs> right? 
So he said, he answered their prayers by what? Blessing them. How do you, how do you know that God's answering your prayer? Well, is he blessing you? Is he answering your prayers? Do you see the fruit of your walk with him? You should be. And if you aren't, and if people aren't seeing it, then that causes for self-examination. He sent them grain, new wine and oil, things that would satisfy them. See, that's, that's, God adds riches without sorrow. Isn't that wonderful? So many people get riches and they have lots of sorrow. But God, when he adds riches, it's without sorrow. And that's a wonderful blessing in and itself. He delivered the army of the north, the Syrians that were coming in and beating the snot out of the northern tribes. And God called them off. And he sent them packing and delivered them, verse 20. So this is just an incredible display of God's abundant grace. Again, God revealing his nature. Those people who say that God is angry and mean in the Old Testament, they haven't read the Bible, I'm sorry. They are ignorant of the scriptures. This is a prime example of the abundant grace and the goodness of God towards his people. And how do you get there? These, you know, these people were rebellious, but they repented. And what did God do? He blessed them. He loves his people. As we mentioned in verse 21, he speaks to the land. The land's probably freaking out, apparently, because he tells the land not to fear. Did you know that the land can fear? No. All these people, these these human beings walking around on me, I, they are so... They, we, isn't that crazy? We who were given dominion over the earth, affect the earth, and the earth has a, a relationship with us that's unknown to us. However we act affects the earth. That's, I, it's hard to get your mind around that. And we just think it's just a bunch of dirt. <laughs> we, we dig a hole, we put concrete in, we build a house. We don't think anything about it. Ouch, ooh, you know, did that, that hurt when we dug the hole? <laughs> I don't know. I guess not. But anyway, he speaks to the land. Fear not, be glad. And God restored the land. The land needed a break too. He speaks to the animals in verse 22. You beasts of the field, I'm going to feed you again. I know you've been fasting for a while. <laughs> right? I mean, remember during the um, the famine and their... Uh, Ahab goes out and he's looking for Elijah. He wants to kill him. And that's so bad that, that, you know, they can't even find a blade of grass for the donkey to eat, you know. It's just barren. And I can imagine having seen the promised land not too long ago to, like, wow, that would have been a rough situation. And so he's telling the animals, you get to eat again. Trees are going to bud. Food's going to return. And he tells the people to again rejoice in verse 23. You're going to be, I'm going to restore. You're going to eat and eat plenty and be satisfied. And you're going to worship and, re, and, and rejoice in me. I think that's just wonderful, verse 26. And he will, again, as we said there, you will not put it, those who do those things to shame. And the most important thing is, you know, God is in their midst. And that's... You know, I remember Chuck years ago when we were in, he would teach us, and um, 
said, if you got a church, you know, they're all a bunch of guys that are hoping to pastor church someday, right? A class. He says, if you end up with a church of 50 people that love Jesus and you love his word, it's, almost, it's like he's, you've arrived. You, that you don't just downplay that. Because if you've got people that love each other and love the word, it'd be better to have that than 150 people with with an angry and mean and, and and you know hateful and divisive that's you don't want that so in the last part of our chapter here verses 28 through 32 let's read here and we'll finish up here And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And on my main servants and my maid servants and men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood, fire, pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. And this is actually even a greater expression of grace, that God would pour out his spirit. Not only is he restoring the people for the repentance in that time and restoring the land, and speaking to the land and the animals and giving them a position of no more guilt and shame, just washing them instead of he's now going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And this obviously, how does we read, begin this section? It shall come to pass afterward. After what? What's he referring to? After their time, after the contemporary moment that Joel spoke into their lives. At some point in the future, this was going to become a reality. And does anybody know how this may have been fulfilled? Anybody know where it's spoken of in the New Testament? Test your Bible knowledge here tonight. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. Yeah, chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, I think. Uh, he quotes this whole passage here that's listed that I just read. The Spirit will be poured upon all flesh. Sons and daughters prophesy. How many of you guys have had a prophetic dream? Ever had a prophetic dream? You know, the Bible talks about God speaks through dreams. Remember we read that in Job 33, like verse 15 or verse 18? God speaks to, to people through their dreams. When man's not getting in the way, <laughs> he's sleeping. God can communicate a message. And he, some, often those w- w- dreams for people come as a warning. It says that there in Job, so he'll turn their, them away from, from death and the grave. But you can see the, the vision here. Young men see visions. Have you ever had a vision? Have you, has the Lord kind of... So I, 
you say, well, I don't know, what's a vision? A vision would be like a dream, but you're awake. So you're seeing potentially a mental image, and the Lord is showing you. Now, I've had both of these experiences since I'm older now. I've had uh, a vision, I had, uh, and I've had prophetic dreams. Not very often, and they're very few. Um, one of the uh, visions I had, we were at a, a uh, conference we used to have. Years ago, we had these adult retreats, and um, we were we, part of our, we would worship, and then we would have the word, and then we'd just kind of wait on the Lord, and then we'd break up, and, and it was a weekend type thing. And after one of the sessions, I was just sitting there. It kind of broke up, but I was just sitting there, uh, in my chair and um, kind of by myself, and I, the pastor came up to me and, and I, I said, I just, I just had this picture in my mind, and it was this plow, you know, the kind of plow that, that is uh, one furrow, and it's you have a handle, the old, and you know they used to hook a team of horses to it, and then you'd stand behind it, and you know you hit the straps and smack the horse on the hiney and they would move. Well, this was that kind of plow with the handles, one bottom, one furrow that would make, but there was no straps and there were no horses. It was just a big plow coming out of the sky, coming down into the soil and turning it over. And I shared it with my pastor and he said, well, let's just sit on it. And so obviously I learned that, you know, uh, that it had to do with my calling. And, and part of that is me being here because God has brought me to the south which is a hard ground it's a religious ground and you know the bible talks about break up the fallow ground and receive the word you know it's one of the you know it's one of the minor prophets here and so i knew that i by that it's been you know as my life has unfolded i'm living in a place where it's, it's hard plowing. This isn't Southern California where, oh, cool, you're starting a Bible study, I'll be right there. And, you know, 100 people show up. It's not like that here. So, you know, the Lord shows you. Now, I've had dreams, but we won't necessarily get into that, but um, you kind of have a sense of what it may mean after you, if you've had one of those. You kind of, the Lord will give it to you, or He will show you what the dream is, and you look for scriptural idioms and try to fit things in there to understand the message. But He doesn't always just give it to you and then just say, "Oh, this is what it means." He, curiosity, is something that God has put in man so that will search. Think about that. I, if you're if you have a curious nature. You're going to seek and search and find stuff. And, and God loves for us to dig. You ever notice that, you know, you enjoy good teaching. You know, there's so many good pastors, so many excellent Bible teachers in our country. I mean, in Calvary Chapel and other places. I mean, it's just amazing, these guys. I mean, just amazing. And yet, when you do your own study and you come across the truth that truth that you found for yourself, that nugget you took time to dig out of the mountain sticks with you a lot more than probably any sermon you may have ever heard. And that's why I encourage people. You know, you can have, you can have these, you know, freedom in Christ. You can have, uh, what are, um, 
Healing Hearts. There's tons of parachurch organizations and ministries that are powerful and good. What are the objective of a lot of those? They're discipleship, right? What is the heart of discipleship? Is to get us to the place of intimacy with God. That's what it's for. If you will study your Bible day in and day out, and you walk with God, and you pray, and you converse with Him, you're having intimacy with God. The mirror of the Word will reflect upon your heart. You will confess and repent, and He will transform your life. And you won't need these other helpers along the way, because you're already doing it. I've been doing it for over 45 years. I'm not don't plan on stopping, <laughs> and it's getting better. You know, that meditation and that time you take of just letting the Word just wash over you and create, you know, as Paul said, the outer man's perishing, it's groaning, <laughs> but the inner man is renewed day by day. As bad as your old, you might think your old man is and your body's looking, it's the opposite of your inner man. You're becoming more beautiful in the essence and the fragrance of Christ is emanating from your spirit because you are in touch with the living God. Isn't that wonderful? That's just, that's what it's about. And when you get your job done, guess what happens? It's exit, stage left. You're out of here. I believe that. Some people get their job done a lot quicker than others. You know, James, they took him out shortly after Pentecost. John, well, not fair, Lord. <laughs> I had to live a full life, right? It's not our choice. It's God's will that comes into play there. But anyway, this passage was interpreted by the apostles uh, to be fulfilled during the day of Pentecost. We're living in the fruits of that in this church age. Remember that you know the Jewish people divided... God's program up into, into ages of three 2,000-year periods. The first period was known as the age of chaos, from Adam to Abraham. And then from Abraham until the time of Christ, when the temple was destroyed, it was the time of Torah, the age of Torah. And then after that, the beginning of the church there's some bleed over between these two when we transition from one age to the next. Much like a, uh, a relay race. There's a time when there's two runners running and they're handing off the baton. But then there's, at some point in time, there's a clean break and we can see that there's been a, a transfer from one era to the next. So we have the age of chaos, we have the age of Torah, and then the age of grace. And then there remains one age of a thousand years uh, which Messiah will reign as king. That's what the Jewish people believed, and that's part of what's uh, in God's prophetic time clock. So if you do, if you really want to get into this and study the solar calendar, I would encourage you to buy Dr. Ken Johnson's book. I can't remember the title of it now. It's the book I got has three different books in it. So... Um, but you can just look up Dr. Johnson. He's been studying the Dead Sea Scrolls for 30-some years, translated a lot of it, just incredible work. And he, in, in, in that, he discovered um, that uh, 
the Essenes and the Qumran community that were around the Dead Sea who buried these in the caves, these, these manuscripts and all, because they, they were trying to preserve it for future generations. They followed a solar calendar. And if you follow the solar calendar, that means you're starting the first day of the year, always on a Wednesday, every year's the same. They would tack on whatever they needed at the end to keep it that way. So all your feast days were always on the same date, the same month, same day of the week, every year. And he traces all those things down in his work. And then they also go back to, well, when did creation really start? You know, how, wait, you know, how, so we believe creation, he starts with the age of Adam. Well, so we don't, we don't know, and we don't need to know how long Adam was in the garden before him and Eve blew it, right? We don't really need to know that. We know by the genealogies that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. So that's day, that's year one. And they go by creation, that being year one. And they mark from that time forward. Using the solar calendar, and it's, I'm telling you, you have to read it two or three times because it's, it's heady. I mean, it's got a lot of stuff in it to try to track all of it down. But I don't know about you, that's part of that little curiosity thing. It gets you and it just pulls you in. <laughs> and it's exciting because I don't know about you, but I've always often wondered, where are we at? What time is it? Because the Gregorian calendar that we go by is a mixture of solar and lunar. One of the things that they've, he's figured out is that 2025 is the beginning of the transitional period. The runner, the, the relay runners are running 2025 interesting what's that mean I don't know <laughs> the day here's what we gather from this that there's been an outpouring of God's spirit it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor handicapped or not handicapped God's no respecter of persons if you will call upon the name of the Lord what will happen to you Paul quotes this in Romans. You will be saved. That's why I would never judge anyone. We don't know if people perish or if they make it to heaven. When could they call upon the Lord? Do, you ever, do you, we ever cease to exist? We have a voice. We may not have this body, but we have a voice. Don't ask me. I would never judge someone because I don't have all the knowledge of what happened to that soul, but I do believe this. If in God's mercy, if someone calls upon the name of the Lord, the thief on the cross, remember me when you come into your kingdom, you'll be with me today. God's looking for any little bit of repentance and sincerity. And if it's sincere and it's repentant and you believe, he's there. That's quite a promise, by the way. That's encouraging. I don't know about you. That comforts me. Because I, I don't know about you, but I have thought, I've got relatives that I don't know. I know there was goodness in them, but I was not raised in a Christian home. 
I note that there was the fear of the Lord in some expressions on occasion. I have a recollection of that with grandparents and, and other relatives. But I have no, like I know most of you are saved because you love Jesus and it's all over, right? That's easy. But what about people that were, grew up in an era where you don't talk about religion and everything's quiet and so you don't know. But you wonder. Oh, I just hope they called upon the Lord. That's all I can say. We don't know what happens between our last breath and the transfer. You never know. That's the hope. I may be wrong, but that's my opinion, and that's how I comfort myself in these things. Because that's to think otherwise, to think of of um, people perishing is can't handle it. Just what's he say? You'll be saved, and there's deliverance. Whew. Wow! Whoever calls, whom the Lord calls. You know, I believe God shows people, whether it's through dreams or just that they have the premonition that I think I'm not going to be here much longer. I think I've heard this before uh, from people say, I, you know, I just feel like my days are, I, I just think it's not too far away. I haven't felt that, just so you know. <laughs> I don't plan on leaving anytime soon, and I trust you don't either. <laughs> I don't want to lose anybody here, you know. I like my relationships with you guys, right? But just sort of a general recap as we end here, you know. The wonders that God wants to do, there's always a warning before judgment. There's always a call to repentance and, and come around, listen up. I don't want to do this just like, a, just like a, a, a faithful parent. Son, I've told you, I'm warning you, if you do that again, if you continue in this, you're going to feel the pain. We do that, and God is no different, but he's merciful, and he's gracious. And if we pay attention to the warnings, and we, okay, I get it, I'm not going to do that anymore. We repent, what will happen? We'll be blessed. Look at this, the abundance, the the healing, the restoration. And so, uh, I don't know, I just, I just find this very encouraging. You know, I think about the people who are running from the Lord. He's got a lot more rope than you have strength to run. And at some point in time, it's going to run out and you're going to fall flat. And, you, and he's going to be there to pick you up if you're willing for him to pick you up. And so, I, sometimes we just have to pray people into a, a position where they can't run anymore. <laughs> The only place they can look is up. So that'd be a good way for us to pray tonight, right? For some of our relatives or friends or whatever. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would just continue to strengthen us in our faith and show us how to pray tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.